Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SupChina Access and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from UC San Diego at the School of Global Policy and Strategy. First stop on Seneca's Winter 2019 California Tour. An election year is upon us here in the United States. For those of us here in the U.S. who work on China, it's hard not to think of the race and the possibility of a different administration as an opportunity to advance our ideas about what policy ought to be toward China. So if we were to have the ear of a President Biden or President Warren or Buttigieg or a President Pence or, as remains a distinct possibility, another President Trump, what should we say to him or her when it comes to China policy? So today we're going to ask two of the most highly regarded individuals in the field of China studies, Susan Shirk and Barry Naughton. Susan has been on the show a couple of times before. She served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific during the Clinton administration, is the author of the excellent book, China, Fragile Superpower, and is now Research Professor and Chair of the 21st Century China Center here at the School of Global Policy and Strategy. Susan, welcome back to Seneca and thanks for making the time. Thanks. Thanks for coming to visit us. Oh, I'm delighted. Okay. It's so lovely here. I'm looking out Barry Naughton's window here at the, at the Pacific. It's just amazing. Barry Naughton, he of the wonderful office view, is the Soquan Lok Chair of Chinese International Affairs at the school and for as long as I've studied China, has been one of the very foremost experts on China's economy. Barry joins us on Seneca for the first time and a very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Kaiser. Susan, Barry, We've seen a number of initiatives around framing or reframing the national conversation on China, if not indeed explicitly aimed at giving policy direction to an incoming administration. Um, I think you've both been part of such initiatives. I know, Susan, you're sort of one of the, the, the leaders, along with Orville Shell, of one of them. At present, I'm actually involved in, in a new one. I've talked about a little on the show. So it would be hard, I think, to claim that any of these efforts so far has been particularly successful. Um, either just from their impact on policy or even from sort of how they've been received. How would you characterize these efforts, both of you? And, and what would you say have been their successes and, and their shortcomings? Well, I'll start. Um, 
because the task force on U.S. policy toward China that Orville Schell at the Asia Society and I got started back in 2015, uh, and we still are continuing to work, we've issued two reports. And the first one was done uh, assuming there would be a normal president, and then uh, it we completed it just as Donald Trump was elected. So uh, we decided to carry on nonetheless and just lay out what we thought was the right way forward. And I think uh, for good or for ill, it did have some impact because the major theme was reciprocity. And um, we, of course, we haven't been the only people saying that, but maybe we were the first people to lay that out in a systematic way. And that has become a... Uh, a way of framing the uh, more equitable relationship between the U.S. and China. And we have, we do brief people in the Trump administration and talk to them, um, as well as folks in Congress. So it's, uh, it's bipartisan. The second report was issued kind of a midterm right. report called Course Correction Toward an Effective and Sustainable China policy. We just met again and reviewed that. It really holds up very well, I think. And I do believe that it has had some impact. You know, it advocates calling out China for the things that it's doing that mm -hmm. uh, are violations of our interests and values, calls out for a kind of tougher approach. But it also says that we need to try to negotiate a lot of these issues. First of all, we need to identify what are the priority areas, the things that China is doing that we find most egregiously unfair or detrimental to ourselves, and uh, and then really try to negotiate. So this is not something the Trump administration has embraced, no. um, but I think it is... Uh, has been helpful to Democrats who are running for president. Actually, I also wanted to ask, before maybe we go to you, Barry, what is the relationship between the task force and Larry Diamond's Hoover Institution report? What's happened is our task force has spun off a few more focused uh, initiatives. I see. One of them was this influence report which was not endorsed by the whole task force. Right. And in fact, I wrote a dissent. A wonderful dissent. Uh, so, uh, but it is kind of, it's a set of issues that people in the task force thought were important to dig a little deeper into that. The Hoover Institution was happy to collaborate on that. So that's what happened there. This time right now, we have uh, different spin-off groups, including one that we're doing on science and technology oh, in U.S.-China relations uh, that Peter Cowie, our own dean, is chairing, and Barry and I are participating in, and we have folks, um, scientists and engineers, as well as China policy people. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think these, uh, obviously, these task forces, including our own, have come in the context of not only dramatic change in the way the administration makes China policy, but also a sea change in what 
a broader public's attitude toward China is due to changes in China's behavior. I mean, of course, the Trump administration uh, is is so unusual in in that Trump has this preference for discordant voices, and he loves to get them quarreling, and then himself be the decider and the, you know figure out what the uh, what the policy should be. So it's very very hard for us to claim we've influenced the Trump mm-hmm. administration. I think that's probably not the case, but. I think we have contributed to a kind of a reorientation in in mainstream attitudes towards China that we need to demand reciprocity. Uh, As Susan said, we need to rebalance our relationship in multiple different dimensions. When I've heard criticism of these initiatives, and um, they're not aimed at any one in particular, but more generally, and often this is frankly in the context of trying to put together our own, uh, one of the the problems that, that have been pointed out is that when you bring in so many disparate voices, the end product ends up being simply the lowest common denominator, that you need to compromise it down into something that ends up being, well, rather kind of pre-masticated and and not terribly forceful. How do you plead? Do you think that that's that's true? Well, of course, we were aware of that danger. (laughs) And as uh, a person who was responsible for a lot of the writing of it, although we had a great system of divvying up different issues among the different participants. So they did their various parts of it. I I, I don't think it's lowest common denominator. Mm. I really think that, I mean, it does reflect a certain balance, but I think all of us think that a little bit more balance in our approach to China is what's needed. And I don't think it's, uh, I think the writing is actually fairly sharp. But maybe I'm just being defensive. I, you know, I... Uh, That's okay. That's fine. But what I think is important, actually, I mean, anytime you try to get a group together, you know, it's a can be a tortuous process. Um, but I'm really very encouraged by the kind of debate over China policy that we're having right now. Because for a while there, I thought that everybody was in such a strategic panic and uh, that we were hurting one another in a hurting instinct and taking ourselves right off a cliff here in the United States. But in recent, in the last six months or so, I see a lot of individuals and groups who are kind of calming down and trying to think in a smart way about how do we deal with this very challenging relationship with China. I mean, you look at, you know, Fareed Zakaria had a piece recently. There was another really good one. You just scooped my recommendation for the end of the show. Oh, sorry. (laughs) But I mean, um, so... You know, I'm I'm really glad to see people, including people who are not China hands, you know, really trying to think calmly and rationally about what's really in the interests of the United States. Right. Yeah, and I, I find that to be true too. That uh, I was also maybe a year ago pretty panicked. It, it really felt like um, everyone was that the, the middle had vanished. Um, that there were a few sort of crazy folk for whom seizing things China could do no wrong. But then uh, the rest of them had, had turned just sort of really assertively hawkish. And no, that's not the case. There are plenty of people still in the center. I mean, I do hear a lot of people being so pessimistic, like decoupling will occur. Right. This is happening. 
And so how are we going to adapt to that? Uh, and then there are people like um, Henry Kissinger at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Beijing, where I heard him <laughs> say, we're in the foothills of the new Cold War. Right. And we still have plenty of time to try to turn this around if we're smart about it. So I agree with that. We'll talk about whether we are in the foothills or how far up the slope we've ascended into the cold of a new Cold War. But uh, for now, I, one of the things that, Barry, you, you, you mentioned um, that, you know, we're trying to come up with this sort of in uh, as part of a, a broader American strategy. I, I feel like there's an absence right now of anything that we can put our finger on and call an American grand strategy. And I wonder whether it's even possible to have a China strategy given the outsized importance of China and the challenges that China poses in American strategy, can we have a China strategy in the absence of an American grand strategy? That's a great question, Kaiser. I think it's clear that we can't have a, an effective China strategy without having a coherent grand strategy. I mean, one thing that we can say about Donald Trump is in some ways, he does have a grand strategy, right? His grand strategy is that the United States is going to retreat from its role as the sponsor of a whole broad set of multinational institutions and, and procedures and become, in some ways, a much more ordinary power. He talks about making the America great, but really what he wants to do is make America a country whose policy focuses on its own narrow material interest. And in a sense, there is a logic to that because after all, American GDP is not 40% of world GDP anymore. It's about 23%. It's still the biggest. It's important. But, but if, if Trump thinks he can make America more prosperous by reducing the burdens that America bears, uh, globally. Now, I think that's wrong. And I think uh, if we get a new president next year, if it's a Democrat, the one thing we can say is that Democrat will almost certainly uh, resume efforts to invest in global institutions and resume efforts to strengthen our relations with our traditional allies instead of needlessly alienating them. Now, to me, that gives a basis for a much more effective China policy. Because that gives us the ability, you know, not, not to be aggressive toward China, but simply to say to China, look, there are choices you have to make. You can make them to stay as a unique country in opposition to the way most other countries do things. But we're going on with a set of more sophisticated arrangements for trade and investment and technology. And if you'd like to join us, it's up to you to come and join us. And right. I think in the long run, that's our best our best approach. It gives us more multilateral options. It gives us, yeah, of course. So now I think that it's fair that what you say that 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 Trump's um, what shall we call it sort of little America policy is is a a strategy, a grand strategy. What does a China policy look like if we are talking about advising presidents in a a new a new administration? A very strong likelihood is that it'll be a second Trump administration. What is a China policy that is consonant with that grand strategy then? With Trump's grand strategy. That's right. Well, that's a tough question. I mean, I think he, of course, he's his own worst enemy because he's uh, so inconsistent sometimes. But, but I think we'd have to give him credit for having followed through on this 
strategy. He doesn't articulate it as a vision, but uh, he demands certain things from China. And assuming that this most recent trade deal is what it seems to be, then the Chinese seem to be willing to play the Trumpian game and give him some of uh, of what he demands. So, and in fact, maybe prefer to play that Trumpian game. Well, it certainly seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, we we see a Chinese leadership that that seems like it would rather be sort of abused by Donald Trump than be treated with respect by uh, Barack Obama. Uh, maybe they have their reasons for that, but. Um, Anyway, we can't second guess their reasons. I, I, I guess we just have to deal with uh, with a China that, uh, that that looks at the world that way and and accepts certain things from uh, from Donald Trump. Susan, we've all been forced into kind of a new appreciation for just how much power the presidency has in this country, um, mostly through negative examples. But uh, what's your sense of how important it is now for us to get the ear? of the president when it comes to something like China policy. I mean, over the course of many presidencies you've been associated with, you've seen uh, both of you during your respective careers. How much has it mattered what a president's personal predilections are when it comes to a major bilateral relationship like with China? I mean, how much can it impact national security priorities or, or business or, or even the, I mean, the timbre of people-to-people relations? Well, it's it's extremely important, and it was even before the Trump administration, and especially when dealing with a system like China's. You know, one thing that in the Clinton administration we did very frequently is try to get President Clinton on the phone with Jiang Zemin, you know, and to build this leader-to-leader relationship, which... Um, you know, Donald Trump obviously cares a lot about that and puts a lot of energy into doing that. And sometimes it sounds a little silly to us, but it's probably not a bad idea. But in the case now, there is a real disconnect between what I think Donald Trump really cares about in the China relationship, which is mostly the bilateral trade deficit, taking care of American farmers so that he won't have to worry about his reelection. I think that's, that's pretty it. much <laughs> it. But, but what's happened is the rest of the administration, and in fact, the whole policy community in Washington, including members of Congress, have been kind of taken over by a very negative view of China, and it's dominated by the national security hawks. So you have the Pentagon, the intelligence communities and stuff are, I think there was a whole pent-up demand under the Obama administration for, you know, getting tougher on China. They were watching China's military capabilities improve, its technologies improve, actions in the South China Sea. And, you know, they were really starting to think of China as the main military threat confronting the United States. So generally in the past, certainly in the Clinton administration and also the George W. Bush and Obama, the security folks always want very tight controls on technology transfer to China. The business community basically wants unrestricted commercial opportunities 
and they push back, and then the White House has to strike a balance somewhere in between. But if things are not working that way now, yeah, uh, because the business community is also fed up with China, you know, because Chinese policy is a bit of a change just recently. Well, you get you're starting to hear a little bit of uh, noise from them, and I understand that they have filed. Um, well, they want their exemptions. Right. I mean, that's the interesting thing about how this game works now is CFIUS and the Commerce Department on uh, export controls yeah. are taking a much more expansive approach in tightening up uh, transfers of technology to China. And then, uh, and tariffs, of course, too, have been kind of very broad and and then specific firms specific sectors come in they ask for their exemptions which is kind of interesting cuz it's a great rent seeking situation you know uh, <laughs> is that and- a good way to describe it very rent seeking <laughs> yeah right? absolutely Barry, you had said that the Chinese seem to prefer being abused by Trump than than being coddled by the Obama administration. Respected, I think. Yeah, I said treated treated with respect. Treated with respect. So, so do do you mean that literally? I mean, for you, is it uh, down to the president again? Is it is it down to uh, the actual preferences of of an individual, or are you speaking more metaphorically? Um, well, I think to a certain extent, it is tr- certainly true of individuals. I mean, and these two individuals, Obama and Trump, are, of course, very, very different on precisely that dimension. Um, but uh, but I guess I would also expand it. I would add uh, one group to, to Susan's outstanding analysis, which is also the sort of the internationalist wing of the American political establishment, right. uh, which are certainly largely Democrats, but obviously include Bob Zellick and Henry Kissinger and, and lots of other people. Um, so that in the, until just the last couple of years, the security hawks were more than kept in balance by the combination of the business sector and the internationalists. Um, and so what's really striking is that, that both of those balancing coalitions have evaporated. You know, the internationalist wing no longer thinks that China is playing by a set of understood principles. So most people think, no, we need to push back a little bit, as well as the business community in general feeling that their interests are, of course, they're threatened from multiple sides, but they're certainly threatened to a certain extent by Chinese assertive economic policies. So um, so to come back to, to your, your core question, I think it was, in some sense, it raises the question of engagement. Right, because both business and the internationalist establishment felt that it was worth investing in the relationship as a whole. It was worth overlooking certain things, perhaps, or at least treating them as temporary deviations in order to keep the relationship on track. Now that's been shattered. In, and I think shattered on both sides. Right? In the United States, nobody of course we should be engaged. Nobody's, I don't think any reasonable person should question the idea of engagement. But this broader concept of engagement, that it involves sort of accepting tacit linkage and trying to show a lot of 
respect for positions, uh, that's gone away because Chinese behavior has changed. Abuses in places like Xinjiang are too egregious to overlook. There's a whole range of things. So just to simplify that, that I mean, it happens that was my next question. A lot of us are wrestling with this question of, do we relitigate the case for engagement? I mean, really, ever since, um, I think, I can't remember, it was 2015 or so, when Eli Ratner and, and, and um, Kurt Campbell published that, was it maybe 2016 that they, they published a piece in, in Foreign Affairs, uh, really taking to task this whole idea that this, this case that engagement has failed. Engagement has failed has been sort of the, the rallying cry of those uh, who, who want that more hawkish policy. Do we bother to try to reassert engagement, or is it just some, an albatross now around our necks and we should move on? Well, I, I think it's a historical question, and uh, I think engagement worked pretty well combined with China's efforts to reassure the world that it wasn't a threat. And it worked well until it didn't. And it worked well until the mid-2000s when China's behavior, international and domestic, uh, changed a lot. So I think the, the question should be, where do we, how do we move forward? What's the best way to deal with this more difficult China now? And we have to deal with China as it is. You know, we can't, I I don't think there's going to be a return to a golden age. But let's just think in a sane and rational way about what's the best way from the standpoint of our own interests and values to try to induce China to exercise a little more restraint in areas that are really detrimental to us. But isn't engagement itself a policy that one never invokes with nations with whom we have perfect comity? I mean, we don't talk about engagement. It just means talk. I mean, it just means to work toward trying to stabilize relations and to communicate effectively at the diplomatic level, the civil society level, the business and economic level. And that, of course, of course we have to keep doing that. We just can't call it engagement anymore. <laughs> I, I, mean, may, you know. I mean, no, I think we, our, our little group basically did us. We, we kind of came to the agreement that it is a difficult brand to try to resuscitate at this point, and yeah. there needs to be a new word for it. Well, Even that's if- probably true because it, it it means so many different things to so many different people. Right. I mean, look, if we think back, when did we first start talking about engagement? It was in the early 1990s, mm-hmm. at which point the actual level of engagement between our two countries was tiny. Right. And so it was saying, from this this tiny little sprout, should we water it and let it grow? You know, But today... The engagement between the two countries is a gigantic forest. There's hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, millions of Chinese students across the board, everything. So it's the a reality meaning of the word. Right. Yeah, it's just yeah. a reality. The meaning of the word is completely different. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. So 
Uh, Barry, assuming that Trump's negotiators, Mr. Lighthizer and Mnuchin and, and so forth, if they're unable to solve all the structural problems of the Chinese political economy before next November, and I, you know, I'm confident <laughs> that they will, you know, I really, no, I mean, assuming that they won't be able to, what are some of the trade-related issues that you think the next administration, whether it's a Democratic administration or, God forbid, a second Trump administration, what should we prioritize? What are the realistic remedies that we should be pushing for uh, for those pieces of the structural problems that we identify? I think the most difficult problem, unfortunately, is also one of the most central, which is just looking at the economic realm. Uh, Of course, there are many, many political and strategic issues too, but economically, I think the most difficult problem is can we come to any kind of understanding about the degree of subsidy that China provides to its national champion companies. Um, I mean, Huawei is such a difficult case because it, it, it involves so many different issues. But look, one of the fundamental ones is here you have a great company which has received tens of billions of dollars in subsidization from the Chinese government. We wouldn't be in such a difficult position with Huawei if the global market had a couple or three robust competitors. Why don't we have those competitors? Well, one of the reasons is that Huawei has been able to expand market share because it's such a cheap and effective competitor and has pushed so many of those other companies out of business. Because of this basically bottomless line of credit it has with the... It wrote. I mean, we can't prove that that's the... You know, that's not the only reason. They're a good company. They're an innovative, strong, hardworking company. But yeah, it's a, certainly a big, a big factor. And therefore, we can't trust the normal market processes to, to balance this. Um, and where you see it with other companies, sometimes it's a problem, sometimes it's not. Uh, but there's the scale of the subsidization by the Chinese government is massive and unprecedented. And it's not just for state-owned enterprises, but it's, it's also for other national champion companies. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Susan, would you agree? Was Is that priority one for you economically, would you say, for the next administration? Well, I'm pretty pessimistic about our ability to influence that. Hmm. So I think there are particular non-tariff barriers to our firms that could be lowered. Lord, gone after um, and, you know, I think, and some of those uh, changes in regulations and restrictions would also be favored by the private business businesses in China. So, you know, I think private business is a kind of natural ally of foreign firms. Uh, they're pretty unhappy, too. They feel discriminated against. Uh, they struggle to get credit, and they feel insecure because the regulators can swoop down and basically expropriate them, <laughs> um, maybe not completely, but partially, in one way or another. And and they also feel, entrepreneurs feel their physical and political security is also always at risk, as do our business people say there are, I know people in tech sectors who won't go to China anymore because they worry that they might be um, uh, detained 
because of some dispute with a local interest or whatever. So anyway, it's become a pretty dangerous place for these business actors. So what I'm saying is, I think focusing on non-tariff barriers and fair treatment inside the China uh, economy, opening up more sectors to foreign investment would be a better way to go because then that would have a lot of payoff in terms of striking the balance here in the United States so that the business community would once again uh, feel optimistic about the prospects for Mm. um, doing business in China. Let's talk about the trade agreement that uh, Michael Pillsbury and others in the Trump orbit were crowing about uh, at the end of last week, the phase one of the trade deal. Uh, No new tariffs went into effect uh, yesterday, or I guess that was yesterday, right, the the 15th, which I suppose was a good thing. But beyond that, it's not entirely clear what was agreed to. What are your quick thoughts on that before we get back into the sort of advice for the next president? Well, of course, there's always this uncertainty. Are we are we Charlie Brown, and are we going to have the football <laughs> pulled away from us again before we try to kick it? Uh, but this time does seem to be different. It appears that there is uh, a genuine agreement here, partly because we see the outlines posted on the USDR website, partly because the Chinese have said that there is such an agreement. Still, the the two accounts don't agree at all about what was agreed, but. They seem to disagree in a way that can be interpreted as both sides spinning it Mm -hmm. so that it won't look like they conceded. So it does seem like it's a real agreement. It seems a little hard to believe the Chinese are going to buy an additional $200 billion worth of imports by 2021. That's That's a stretch. But on the other hand, the Chinese have agreed to step up their buying while tariffs are still in place, which, keep in mind, is one thing they said they would never do. So, Susan, we're seeing this phrase, Cold War, being used once again. Uh, You said uh, Henry Kissinger deployed it, but not not in a... You know, in a more optimistic kind of a way, you know, saying that we're only in the foothills of it. Um, <laughs> Neil Ferguson, uh, the historian, wrote an op-ed recently in the New York Times where he talked about it uh, as though it were a good thing. I don't know if you caught that, but what's your take on whether this phrase ought to be used and what would you advise the person in the Oval Office come January 2021 about the use of this word and this framing of Cold War? Well, I think there are many reasons not to use it because the U.S.-China relationship is so different from the U.S.-Soviet relationship, especially uh, the U.S.-China relationship. China is, you know, China and the United States, our economies, our societies are so intertwined, very, very different. But are we in a global systemic competition are we thinking ideolo- are the two sides thinking ideologically about it? Yes. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And I think that kind of ideological thinking, you know, you hear so many people saying now, oh, we'll never be able to uh, cooperate with China because it's ruled by this Communist Party. Mm. Because uh, just the other day, actually, at our task force, one of our members said that China is systemically incompatible with the U.S. system. So, 
we have to decouple. You know, and to me, this is kind of ideological thinking. This is reifying the systems and seeing them as uh, an impossible hurdle to diplomatically working out specific issues. So, But I'm, uh, I'm a little confused because you sort of said we are in a Cold War, but then you said we shouldn't be in a Cold War. Well, I'm saying that this type of ideological thinking is all has already taken hold by in both sides. So I think we are in a cold war. Do I think that's a good thing? No, I don't think it's a good thing at all. And I think that uh, let China play the ideological game. Let us be more pragmatic in the way we deal with the China challenge. Yet I, I hear a lot of the ideological stridency coming from, from both sides, ours yeah. very much included. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But if you object to what China is doing in Xinjiang, isn't that an ideological? No, I don't agree. I mean, I think it's absolute. Let's criticize China for what it's doing in Xinjiang. But how do we deal with that? You know, Which is, yeah, and the big question for me: How does a candidate or or even a president uh, stake out a position that is one that that seeks to turn the temperature down in some ways, but at the same time take a principled stand on issues like Xinjiang? Is it possible to do both of these things? I, I I'm not sure. Of course, that would be that would be. Uh, a tremendous achievement for any states statesperson, uh, but I guess my feeling would be: I don't think we should be afraid of the world Cold War and let other people define it for us. China talks all the time about U.S. new Cold War thinking. I think we should reject that and not be too beholden to it. I think we need to find a new vocabulary to talk about the Chinese Communist Party. Right now, we're kind of embarrassed to talk about communism in China because it, it, it reminds us of the McCarthy era. We feel like, oh, we've grown, we've grown past that. Uh, the Communist Party of China obviously is not a deeply ideological party committed to, you know, uh, common sharing the wealth and, and working for, uh, for the society in some kind of Maoist way. But it is a very powerful, controlling, ideological organization that I think threatens our interests and our values. I don't think we should be afraid of saying that. No, I agree with that. And I, and, you know, if you go back and read the speech that Xi Jinping gave uh, right after he became the general secretary of the party, the first uh, central committee, which was in 2013 only published partially. And then in the last, I think maybe in May or June was published in Chaoshire. It is much more explicit than anything in his other speeches or in the 19th Party Congress work report about his belief that the Chinese system is superior to the system in the West. I mean, he definitely sees a contest of systems and he 
proclaims the superiority of socialism with Chinese characteristics uh, to market democracies and, you know, has the ambition to not necessarily just spread it all over the world. That's one of the issues that people debate. Right. Does he We've have that or not? Liz Economy just wrote on that and yeah. uh, in answer to something that I, I think was excellent that Jessica Chen yes, Weiss wrote. Right. Uh, I, I tend, I have a side that I take in that. Yeah, but that's but, one thing. It's kind of debatable what you think. But clearly, there is this kind of um, thinking in China. And, you know, I think we should have confidence in our own system, too. And I hope that we can compete by becoming a better version of ourselves rather than uh, aping China through various protectionist measures. One of the things that we've seen is it's technology, obviously, has moved very much to the center of the Sino-American tensions that we're experiencing right now uh, within the policy community, within the, you know, I mean, it's become a real battleground, right? Tech touches absolutely everything from national security to economic competition, even to human rights, you know, because we've seen this sort of uh, techno-authoritarianism, you know, pretty horrific uh, shape in, in Xinjiang. It's, it touches the way that Chinese nationals or ethnic Chinese people are treated in the U.S. since so many of the people in the sciences and technology have Chinese backgrounds. This is something, of course, that, that Susan, you wrote about uh, in that excellent dissent that you wrote. Uh, from the conversations I have on this topic, it seems like nobody is dismissing the national security challenges that, that tech brings up. No one fails to realize at the same time that it's, it's, it's being harnessed for repression in China. Uh, but very few people are, are openly calling for banning anyone with a Chinese background from putting on a lab coat or getting a job in tech. Uh, very few people are calling for a total separation of our total tech ecosystems. Um, there's still all this rancor. I don't believe our leadership has the, the understanding of technology. I mean, you just watch those those hearings in the Senate with um, some of our, our technologists, and it was just sort of embarrassing. I don't think that they necessarily have a grasp of it in China either. This seems to me like uh, an area where a lot of effort must be placed. Uh, it was really encouraging to hear that your task force now has a dedicated technology unit. Talk to me a little bit about how important this is and what you think some of the steps we should be taking toward addressing these really difficult, thorny issues. Barry? Well, I mean, of course, one of the reasons these issues are so difficult is precisely because we've got this new wave of technological change where we just don't know what the ultimate impact is going to be. Right. And therefore, all of the suspicion and maneuvering and strategic distrust comes to the fore in the, in the most fundamental things. Um, but of course, um, you know, at a minimum, we have the fact that the intellectual interaction between China and the United States has been fundamental to the creation of these new technologies. Not only the flow of, of manpower from China to the United States, Chinese graduate students taking up uh, faculty positions, contributing to the research, running labs in China, developing ideas, prototyping, scaling up, um, all these things are so fundamental to everything that's happening that, of course, we need to, to do as much as we can to to protect that continuing development. Right. Now, it seems inevitable that there will be a degree of de Well, it's already occurring. There is a degree of decoupling happening in things like batteries and obviously in AI. Um, so I think the best we can do is 
be aware of the uncertainty and try to foster the collaboration that has been so productive to both sides. Well, um, I was really encouraged by the Jason report mm-hmm. that the National Science Foundation commissioned. The Jasons are a group of very eminent scientists and technologists uh, from all fields who do studies for the usually for the Defense Department. But here they looked at this question of how should universities be handling it and how should the federal agencies like NSF and Department of Energy and NIH, what should their their approach be? And basically what they said was that universities should enforce more rigorously their conflict of commitment and conflict of interest rules that already exist. NSF should maybe tweak those rules a little bit to make sure that people report honestly if their project has received funding or is being shared by other people, especially outside this country but that the risk of actually trying to micromanage which technologies should allow Chinese students and scholars to be involved and which shouldn't, the potential costs of that to America in terms of attracting and retaining talent are just too high, and that we should just not get into that game at all. And that, um, and certainly... You know, because universities don't do classified research. Right. So if if something is so close to national security, then make it a classified research and do it somewhere else. Or uh, maybe export controls. Maybe you'll want to identify particular things. But they, their basic approach was to take a much more modest and prudent approach to this problem, on universities at least. So whatever you may think of, of Donald Trump's approach and whatever the cost there may have been, one thing that seems to be true is that Trump has upended things and, and knocked away a lot of the pieces of the old China policy. It's knocked it loose. Should we be trying in this administration, this next administration, to rebuild it basically as it was? Or is this an opportunity to reconfigure and reorder some things, to put the pieces back together in a different shape? I I think that's a tremendous question. That's that's a great question that we should all be thinking about very actively. I don't think we want to put it back together the way it was. It's it's gone. It's gone uh, both in the negative and in the positive. In the negative sense, uh, a certain degree of trust that existed between at least elites in the two countries has probably probably been shattered and mm-hmm. will never be reproduced. But it's also gone in the sense that the hopeful belief that China would become, a, let's use Zelik's word, a, a responsible stakeholder in a reform set of international norms and institutions has been disrupted, but those institutions need change anyway. And so if we can think of new ways to broaden the World Trade Organization or get back into Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, because the somewhere between those two options, and I'm not saying either one is the exclusive right one, 
somewhere between them is a set of agreements about how to handle a whole new set of issues that we had never been able to address before. So if we treat this as a moment of opportunity, perhaps that will help us to think of some, uh, some, some effective new solutions to a broader range of issues. And concretely, in terms of advice that you would give about this reassembly, what are some of the things that you see now that have been knocked loose that maybe can take on a new form? Well, I actually am a little bit more optimistic about China finding ways to build its influence and prestige globally through multilateral institutions once we get back into that game. But of course, they'll have some of their own ideas, which will be hard for us to agree to. But um, if it all looks like the AIIB, we're okay. (laughs) Well, the AIIB, yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, the fact that Xi Jinping and Chinese leaders still care about their international reputation as being positive, responsible powers rather than being a big rogue state, I think that's something you can build on still. So I think there is still a chance there. I am somewhat more pessimistic about China's domestic political evolution, although even there, I think it would be a mistake to think that the, the it's like she's, this forever. That's right, because you we know, all seen, we've seen cycles before. Yeah, and there's a lot, a lot of unpredictable things that could happen. The middle class are a wild card, and the other uh, thing that's a wild card is how long other Communist Party leaders will tolerate having Xi Jinping monopolize all the power and privilege the spoils of power. That's right. So both of those things could erupt um, if there's some kind of crisis in the economy, a financial crisis, or some other kind of crisis. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that has been sort of knocked loose and is no longer on its original moorings is the United States and its relationship with Taiwan. I'm wondering whether you think that Trump's disruptions may have maybe changed the Overton window and that an incoming administration might be able to talk about Taiwan differently. And I mean, I I say this not just it's not just Trump, obviously, but domestic things have happened too. most notably, you know, what's happened over the last seven months in Hong Kong. And the way that Taiwan is not thinking things now, we have an election coming up in Taiwan. Is there a different conversation that the United States can be having about Taiwan? Well, I don't know. I've just been uh, reading back in the Deng Xiaoping era and normalization. And, you know, I think it would be very provocative and very destabilizing for the United States to change this bargain that exists. I think the people of Taiwan are watching what's happening in Hong Kong. They're going to vote accordingly. Um, And that's the situation that the leaders in Beijing are confronting. They can either, you know, it's a challenge to them to how to uh, prevent more formal um, independence movement on the part of the Taiwan people. But I think the United States would really be making a mistake to 
uh, more actively support that independence movement. So you would encourage a new administration to stick strictly to the three communiques and the consensus and... I'd say be very cautious about that because you're you really are playing with fire. Mm-hmm. Barry, do you have thoughts on that? I think I probably agree with that. I mean, we do. It's it's funny, you know. One of the elements of engagement was also the idea that uh, if we had certain positive, constructive policies, it would strengthen reformers within China and weaken hawks. Now, uh, you know, I said earlier we don't believe that that's a, a, an effective way to proceed, but we still need to acknowledge that the other side of it is still true, that we've been much firmer with China, much more demanding of China, and as a result, the hawks in China are much stronger than they were. Um, we just have to accept that. Uh, we have to deal with it, but we also have to worry that the nationalist narrative in China is becoming stronger and more embedded in in people. I I personally believe we need to continue, maybe this is why I'm, one of the reasons I'm less afraid of the Cold War metaphor. I think we need to struggle for the hearts and minds of Chinese people as well. Uh, Well, I think we did that more effectively um, the less we did. I think I feel like if you look at, at public opinion polling in China, it was during that period of general liberalization in China. It's when, the, and it's precisely in those geographies where we are in most contact with China. It's in those geographies where internet penetration is high, where uh, foreign languages are spoken more, where there's a larger foreign presence, where you find that kind of ideological matrix that's more receptive to the moderates. So I don't throw out the other side of that equation either. I, I feel like a better U.S.-China relationship yields more people who are liberal in character. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like that's always been the case, and this is this is my primary problem uh, with that, that the sort of hawkish turn is that we are creating people who are more receptive to 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 nationalism, to to being whipped up by that uh, th- those forces. So, and I think we have to. Ex- I mean, we have to accept that cost if we're going to be firm and push back then there's going to be a nationalist counterreaction. Yeah. But we have to say we're realistic, we're grown-ups, we accept this, but it's not our intention and we can also we can do we can walk and chew gum. We can also signal that we don't uh, threaten the national aspirations of the Chinese people. Also there are ways of doing it. You know, I my impression is that in China there were a lot of people, including a lot of private business people, intellectuals, you know, urban young people who actually welcomed more pressure from the United States because they... In economic issues. In economic issues because they recognize there are not sufficient checks and balances on uh, this autocratic system in China. But it was when we put Huawei on the entity list and said that our technology firms could no longer sell their technology to Huawei. That was so costly to our own businesses that it was a very strong signal of unmitigating hostility to China. Right. Very credible, strong signal of, of so extreme and so hostile. And I think that 
was uh, the turning point when a lot of people felt that we might as well give up. The U.S. is just engaged in a all-out containment of China. So they rallied around the flag, around the leader, and turned more nationalistic. Nationalistic, yeah. yeah. Which, of course, doesn't necessarily mean it was the wrong thing to do. I mean, because on the other hand, people react short term. They say, "Oh, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're threatening us." But on the other hand, if they're rational, and we tend to believe that Chinese people are rational, that they'll also, with time, go. Oh, but on the other hand, that shows how deeply interpenetrated we were. And maybe our industrial policy that said we should be spending hundreds of billions of dollars to get American semiconductors out of our equipment is not working, and maybe we should rethink you know, the kind of nationalist policies that we followed. Of course, they're not going to do that in day one. But three years later, give it a chance. Of course, they have gone mostly the other way, saying that we should be spending more of course, on but, self-reliance. Of course, but that's part of, exactly part of the short-run response that I'm talking about. I mean, of course they're going to say, we're not going to allow ourselves to be pushed around. Of course. That's natural. Well, once successful at it, they have very little reason to come back to the table. If they're successful, they have little reason to come yeah, back. I think uh, looking at the history of China's when it's got its back against the wall. Mm, I, I'm not sure I would agree I with think that. think about the 1950s after the Soviet pullout and what China was able to do with their rocketry and nuclear programs. And Anyway, it is a different ballgame entirely to, to produce you know these really advanced semiconductors. So maybe you're right. It remains to be seen. I have to go pay for parking. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. I'm going to wind up here quickly. But let me quickly... Uh, Thank the both of you, Barry and, and Susan. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. Uh, let's move on to the recommendation section of the show. First, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best thing you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. It is just great value for money. Sign up and spread the word. Okay, recommendations. Barry, would you, would you like to go first? Well, sure. The The book I read recently that I was most enthusiastic about was George Packer's uh, biography of Richard Holbrook. Yeah. Uh, not just fascinating take on U.S. foreign policy and, and establishment, but also this meditation on the way in which the good side and the bad side of, a, of one individual were so inextricably linked that you couldn't really tear them apart. And I kept thinking about that in relation to Certain people in China, Chinese policymakers, definitely applicable in many ways. Warts and all. I mean, just the complexity of that man. In, in all, it's it's really it's genuinely hard to read in parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was. It, 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 I was just filled with this sort of embarrassment uh, that w- it made it hard to turn the page sometimes. Mm-hmm. Packer was just so unstinting, unsparing, and, and really quite pitiless sometimes in his characterization. I never had trouble turning the page, though, but maybe that's the uh, inc- national inquiry. My, I think my, my inclination was to like him so much that it was hard for me to read anything that kind of you know was less than hagiographic. But <laughs> great book, though. I really loved it. Susan, what would you like to recommend? How about Ezra Vogel's biography of Deng Xiaoping, which I've been going back to read in it, and there are, you know, I know there's criticism of it for not being critical enough of about Tiananmen, but there's also a tremendous amount of wonderful detail about the reform era and uh, about Deng 
uh, and Mao. So I. It's kind of a perfect that. counterpoint to the to the Packer Holbrook book because the Packer Holbrook book makes such a point of bringing up both the good and the bad, whereas Vogel does such a great job of bringing up the good, but at the cost of really not talking about the bad. I have yet to read it. It's I'm I'm ashamed to say it's been sitting there staring at me for a long time since Ezra sent it to me, and I I just. It's intimidating. It's so goddamn long. I mean, I, I keep, well, Ezra Vogel is amazing. He is, and he has a new book on China-Japan relations, and he's just you know he's really the uh, really impressive how much he yeah. has contributed post retirement. Yeah, that's for sure. Give a listen to the episode that we have on Seneca where him and Orville Shell are in conversation uh, with Joe Kahn from the New York Times moderating. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to listen to. My recommendation, actually, Susan already spoiled it, is for Fried Zakaria's piece in Foreign Affairs called The New China Scare, which is a very clear-eyed, uh, very smart take on uh, why we shouldn't go off the cliff, basically. It's um, it's a good, sensible thing from Fareed Zakaria. People know him from GPS, from his talking head appearances on CNN. But he's actually a person of marvelous depth. Uh, and if you haven't read his book, The Post-American World, I highly recommend it. It's it's very good. He's 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 really a, a genuine intellectual and not, not just a newscaster. Thanks again to both of you, Barry and to Susan. Uh, it's been a, a splendid conversation, and I, I hope our listeners got as much out of it as I did. So uh, hopefully we'll we'll speak to you both again soon. Look forward to it. Me too. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And be sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, New Voices, Ta for Ta, the Middle Earth Podcast, and Strangers in China. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.